to, to prepare to, to hear God's Word, we want to take time to bring our attention, bring our focus here to this place, to God the Holy Spirit, who is here working in us, through us, among us, and also to confess what we believe is true, to, confet, to prepare our hearts by physically saying the things that we believe. Last week, we used a passage from Philippians 2, both as our call to worship and as our benediction. We're going to do that again this week. Um, this particular passage was a hymn. Most theologians felt like it was a hymn that was sung during, uh, during times of communal worship. And so we're not going to sing it, but we are going to say it together. So we're going to read it. I'm going to read the first slide. Roland, if you'll go ahead and put that up there. So I'll read the first slide, and then the, the two following slides will stand and read together. So if everyone would stand up. And we use this as a way of tuning our hearts to, to the Holy Spirit, tuning our hearts to God's Word, letting every other distraction, everything that is out there, every demand that we have, just set it aside so that we can be fully present here to ourselves, to God, to each other. Grace Church, we should have the same attitude towards one another as Christ Jesus had, who together, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As a result, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on an earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. You may be seated. I was a teenager, I'm not sure exactly how old, but I was a teenager, and I remember the setting so very well. My dad and I were driving, and, uh, and he said, son, I mean, I can, I can remember how he looked, I can remember we were in the car, I can remember the day, and he said, son, I'm going to tell you something, and I don't want you to ever forget this, and that's all I remember. That's literally all I remember of the encounter, is the vividness of where we were, who I was with, when it was, and how it was set up, and nothing after that. Like, I don't remember, I don't have a clue as to what he said after that. And I think that probably encapsulates what it means to be human in a way is that we are continually presented with truth. We are continually presented with, with things that we need to remember, things that we shouldn't forget. And we hear them, and we may give a nod, we may acknowledge them, we may write them down, we may think about them for a moment, but then we turn away. We turn away, and it's just like, it just evaporates from our brain. It just goes 
goes out, right? And this is especially true in our day and age where we've, we really see scientific studies um, confirm this, but I'll tell you from my experience, it's also true, is a distraction may be the most significant obstacle facing us as a people, is the inability to really concentrate, the inability to fully be present, the inability to take in information, retain that information, and then act on that information. Studies have shown that that is increasingly difficult for us to do as human beings in in this age of technology. But listen, that's only exacerbated by technology. The iPhone's not the problem, okay? The internet's not the problem. It has good and bad things, and we'll learn. We'll learn from the technology we always have as human beings. We'll adjust to it. Fundamentally, it is a human problem. Fundamentally, it is something that facilitates brokenness, pain, hurt, and a lack of flourishing in our lives. But there's hope here. God knows this. God is not surprised by this. Um, I saw a quote going around the internet, speaking of internet, right, distractions. I was probably distractedly scrolling when I saw this. Um, It said, uh, when God called you to do the task that he called you to do, he fully took into account your stupidity. Like, it doesn't catch God off guard, right? It doesn't catch God off guard that we can't always follow through, that we can't accomplish the things that we're done. Being called to do something should never have the implication that we're going to be able to do that in perfection or in our own strength. The call of God is just to be obedient. The call of God is to faithfully follow and to leave those results to God. This week in our text, we turn to the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah is a book that becomes popular this time of year with Advent. As a matter of fact, many theologians call Isaiah the fifth gospel because of its messianic message that runs through it and the imagery that it uses of the coming Messiah with that. And Isaiah is a huge book. It covers over a hundred years of history in Israel. There's no way that we're going to get into it. But we can thematically understand where the book of Isaiah is going by our verses today. Our verses today in many ways capture the the essence, the spirit of the book of Isaiah. And while we don't have time to go into the whole structure, go into it historically, we can't understand the heart behind it from our message today, from our text. And if we had to sum this up, I think I would say that Isaiah would say, you're all without excuse. No one has an excuse. You've been told what you need to do. You've been given plenty of opportunity, instruction. You're all without excuse. But God still invites us into the reality of see what's going on. And even in our brokenness and guilt, God is always offering grace. Ultimately, that grace is going to come through the person of Jesus, as we'll see in our text, but that our brokenness doesn't disqualify us, and that even in our brokenness, God is using that to teach us something, a message that maybe we'll be able to retain. So we're looking at Isaiah chapter 5, and then we're going to 
that we're going to hop over to verse 11, or chapter 11. But we're going to start with verse, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And we'll make a few observations after we read. Starting with verse 1, it says, I will sing to my love a song to my lover about his vineyard. My love had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He built a hedge around it, removed the stones, planted a vine. He built a tower in the middle of it and constructed a wine press. He waited for it to produce edible grapes, but it produced sour ones instead. Now, it's important to know that this is the voice of the prophet that is saying this. And then we get a voice change. So it goes from Isaiah setting the stage to the voice of God himself speaking. And this is what God says. So now, residents of Jerusalem, people of Judah, you decide between me and my vineyard. What more can I do for my vineyard beyond what I have already done? When I waited for it to produce edible grapes, why did it produce sour ones instead? Now I will inform you of what I am about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, turn it into a pasture. I will break down its wall and allow animals to graze there. I will make it a wasteland. No one will prune its vines or hoe its ground, and thorns and briars will grow there. I will order the clouds not to drop any rain on it. Back to the voice of the narrator. Indeed, Israel is the vineyard of the Lord who commands armies. The people of Judah are the cultivated space in which he took delight. He waited for justice, but look what he got, disobedience. He waited for fairness, but look what he got, cries for help. This is a passage of desolation. This is a, a passage of failure. This is a narrated account of God, a lover who has done everything and yet has only reaped disobedience and sourness as a result of his efforts. And if we were to end there, what would you expect? I mean, the walls are going to be broken down. It's going to be full of briars. What, what, what hope do we have? What hope are we left with? We know from the illustration, everything that the people needed was there. God did God's part. God did everything, and yet still, there was only a crop of bitterness. So we could and should logically expect that the whole thing will be wiped out that there will only be destruction. There will only be punishment for that. Indeed, that's what the world teaches us, right? You get what you deserve. You get what you pay for. All of us intuitively have found this, no matter what culture I've ever worked in, all of us intuitively know we're guilty. Deep down inside, we know there's something in me broken. There's something in me missing. There's something in me there in need with that. But that's not where it ends. That's not where Isaiah ends. That's not where the word ends. That's not what we teach as Christians. In fact, we turn to Isaiah 11 and we start with verse 1. And the promise comes. This is back to Isaiah's voice. The prophet is proclaiming, a shoot will grow out of Jesse's rootstock. So into this pasture, 
full of thorns and briars and untended vineyards. Into this pasture this root grows. Out of Jesse's stock, a bud will sprout from its roots. The Lord's Spirit will rest upon him. A spirit that gives extraordinary wisdom. A spirit that provides the ability to execute plans. A spirit that produces absolute loyalty to the Lord. He will take delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by mere appearances or make decisions on the basis of hearsay. He will treat the poor fairly and make right decisions for the downtrodden on the earth. He will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth and order the wicked to be executed. Justice will be like a belt around his waist, integrity like a belt around his hips. We've been looking this fall at discovering grace, discovering grace in the places and the passages of the text that we read, discovering grace in our experience one another as a church, as a community. And here we see grace in God's loving posture towards us. We see grace in the promises of God to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. And we see grace in the invitation to let God be God, to let God love us as God chooses to love us. We touched on that last week where I said, and I will say it again, I believe the single hardest thing for us to do as human beings is to let God love us as God chooses to love us, to receive that love. There is something in us that rebels against it. We'll take it for a measure. We'll take it on the surface. We'll say we need it. We'll say we want it. But when God's love permeates into the depth of our being, really gets into the dark places, the hidden places of our heart, we run scared. But there is grace here. There is grace here to let God love us as God chooses to love us. This is one of the, the big things here, is that the posture of God towards us, whenever we read, look, whenever we read prophecy, that part of us that knows our guiltiness, that part of us that anticipates consequences to our actions, can quickly twist what we read to confirm that analysis. I'm bad, God's angry, and God is going to punish me or punish them. And because we're so spring-loaded for that response, we don't hear the love in God's voice. We so quickly skip over chapter 5, verse 1. I will tell of my beloved. I will talk about my lover That's reciprocated there. The prophet is convinced that everything that God is doing is coming out of God's loving heart. How do we receive instruction? How do we receive rebuke? Often, as human beings, we offer it with righteous anger. At least that's what we call it, really. Most of the time, it's just pure anger. We offer it with condemnation. We offer it with aggression. We offer it with violence. And so we read that into the text. We read that into the Bible. We just reflect our own imagination, our own attitudes into the text. And we skip over this thing. To really understand this passage, we have to be able to see the love in God's eyes. We have to 
we have to be able to hear the tenderness in God's voice. We have to understand that God's intent here is not to destroy, not merely to punish, but to set the stage for ultimate redemption. That's what God is doing. Look, the time of tearing down so that something else can be built is always bitter. It always feels bitter. It always feels difficult. And so often we will stay there in that place and not see the redemption that is meant to come through it with that. But this starts with love. This passage starts, is filled with, and ends with love. We have to see the compassion in God's eyes. There's a unique aspect of Christianity. Maybe one of the most profound things that sets Christianity apart from other religions is that God invites us to understand. Now, we've talked a lot about this how understanding comes, right? The world says this, and I've said this a number of times, so you'll, you'll be familiar with it, right? We want to hear the thing, understand the thing, and then obey the thing, maybe, right? Whereas the Jewish or the traditional, the biblical way of, of wisdom comes from hear the thing, obey the thing, and then understand the thing, maybe, with that. But what we have to understand is that obedience and understanding here are not separate things. They are intertwined. That when God is asking for obedience, it's not just to uphold some arbitrary moral standard. It is for the flourishing of the community, but it's also so that we understand, so that we get it, so that we can obey as the messianic prophecy here talks about Jesus. We obey joyfully. We obey because we see it's good. We obey because we see it's right. We obey because we see that is the ultimate best thing to do for myself, for others, for God. Of course we would do that. But that understanding comes through our experience where we're being invited here. It's overwhelming. As I thought about it this week, it's overwhelming to think that the God the one who spoke the cosmos into existence created quasars and quarks, atoms, wind and waves, skies and stars, patiently, humbles, humbly invites me to try to understand why God does what God does. Could anything be more honoring? Could anything be more life-giving than the God of the universe inviting us to understand, to know God's mind? But there's a paradox here. There's a paradox here. He invites us into this to understand to also show us the end of our own wisdom. Look, God doesn't need us to agree with him. God's not looking for a pat on the back. Okay? God does not need our affirmation. God's not waiting until, well, as soon as Luke gets it, then I know I'm good, right? <laughs> like, 
That's not what's going on. God, God doesn't need our information. God doesn't need our okay to do what God does. God wants it, though. Not for God's self, but for us. God wants that for us. In the same way that we want our children to obey, not just because we say it, even though we say, just do it because I said it, right? Like that's our default as parents, just do it because I said it, right? We get to the end of our rope. But we really want our, we really want our kids to obey because we want them to, to choose that. Isn't that true? Like we want our kids to obey out of a choice that they know, they get it. Like they're like, yeah, oh, I see, of course I'll do that. How much more is God's heart towards us for the same thing? But in the same way, God also invites us to understand this wisdom, to understand that there's stuff we don't understand. That there is simply stuff we'll never get. If our wisdom as parents is so much greater than our toddler's wisdom, as much as we want them to understand, we also understand, hey, there's stuff they they won't get. They just can't get. But even then, we're still inviting them, hey, work this out, reason this, and then come to the end of your own understanding. See the limits of it. See where you get to the end of your own mind and say, God, it must be yours. I will trust you, even though I don't understand it, even though I can't understand it. I will trust. I will obey. I will walk in your ways. So it's this paradox, right? God wants us to understand, to obey from understanding, but also wants us to understand, to understand we can't understand. Put that on your little plaque on your wall, right? Your nice Christian decoration over your door. But it's true. What other God does this? But we're so primed for punishment, we just think it's, it's some kind of celestial test that I just have to get right. But we end up, just like I did when I was a, when I was a teenager, right? God says, I'm going to tell you something, I don't want you to forget it. And then the test comes and we've forgotten it. So we expect punishment. We expect Jesus to be fed up. We expect God to be out of sorts with us. Well, all this, where does all this lead us? It leads us to Jesus. In Jesus, we see the ultimate mercy and justice of God married and incarnated. We, in Jesus, we see what is done for us, what we cannot do for ourselves. And this enables us to love because we need to see it. We not only need to understand it, but we need to see it played out. We need to see it embodied. And when we understand that, we see the love in Jesus, we hear the love in God's voice. We overcome fear because fear creates anxiety and anxiety stifles love. Our own anxiety about, the, about being like punishment is waiting for us around the corner stifles love. Our own anxiety about not being enough, not being good enough, not having enough information, whatever it is, stifles love. Love for ourselves, love for each other, love for God. So we have to look beyond that. We have to look into the face of God. We have to hear the tenderness in the voice of God. We need to accept the invitation of God 
to reason these things out, to agree where we can understand it, and to give over to God's reasoning where we can't when we come to the end of our own understanding. And understand that there is grace in God's loving posture towards us, grace in the promises of God to do for us what we can never do for ourselves, particularly in the person of Jesus, and grace in the invitation to let God love us. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. This week in the learning guide, we are asking the following questions. And I want to invite you to be very honest this week as you reflect on this. When's the last time you felt like you were corrected or rebuked in genuine love? Not out of frustration, not out of anger, not out of someone wanting you to do something for them so their life was easier. But someone offered rebuke or correction, instruction in genuine love. Has there ever been a time when it was pointed out to you that you were suffering the consequences of a choice or an action in a way that felt compassionate? I th- see, I think we have to recognize the way we treat each other, the way we treat ourselves, and how that is unlike God before we can really fully understand and accept what is being said by the prophet. We have to understand our own predilection to punishment, to judgment, before we can really understand God's judgment as being true, right, and loving with that. And then as we consider those things, Consider how that is going to affect our behaviors, our choices going forward with that. Because if we can receive this in love, if we can receive these things in love, then we can start to give them in love. Give them to ourselves, give them to each other in love. Now, if you want to know where a place to start to practice that, it's right here. This table is set in love. This table is set for us to understand the depth of the sacrifice that the root of Jesse made, that Jesus made. Because Jesus didn't just come to teach principles, came to save us fully, to be the incarnation of salvation, that as we follow Jesus, we are saved. We are set free from the law of sin and death. We are set free from the law of shame and guilt. We are set free to love. That's demonstrated in this table. So everyone is welcome at this table. We don't dismiss my rose. You come up as you're ready. Hold the elements. I ask that you hold the elements. Sit close if you can. And then after everyone's had a chance to to take them, we'll sit and we'll take them together with that.